electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. We're on breakout watch. The Dow and the S&P hitting new records as yields jump. This all despite slowing job growth in November. We're going to dig into this seeming disconnect. Plus, home buyers are coming back for seconds. More Americans are buying two houses these days. And we're going to look at names that could benefit from that trend. And Petco goes public again. Uber wants to be essential, and options trading is the new sports betting. It's all ahead this hour, but let's start with the markets and some of these records. Dom Chu has more for us. Dom? A whole slew of different records. You mentioned some of them out there. The Dow Industrials, a big old gold star there. The S&P 500 gold star. NASDAQ Composite, a gold star. Each of these have hit record highs at one point in trading so far today. But as you can see right now, the Dow Industrials, half a percent gains, roughly the same for the NASDAQ and almost three-quarter percent for the S&P 500, 36.92 the last trade there. Speaking of those three, there's also another key part of the market we've been watching that hit another record high today, and that is the small-cap stocks. They're up right now year-to-date 13%. The Spiders, the S&P 500, up 15%, and then the 44% gain for the NASDAQ 100 tracking QQQ. But as you can see, that white line closing the gap there with the S&P still has a long way to go to catch up with those NASDAQ stocks. But small caps, record high today. And then check out this stock, Snowflake, cloud computing, up 15%. It's still taking off ever since that mixed earnings report. Its first one is a public company just a couple of days ago. But as you can see here, this company, given the gains that we've seen today, 227% since the IPO, is now worth a whopping $109 billion dollars. And Kelly, just for perspective, that means that Snowflake is roughly the same size as IBM, roughly the same size as Lowe's, just a hair below advanced micro devices. It's now bigger than American Express as well. Keeping out Snowflake shares some questions about valuation at these lofty levels. Back over to you. I mean, it was a superlative IPO, and it's been a superlative performer. Dom, why is it up 15% today? So, again, some of those mixed results coming from those earnings. Now there's a question about whether or not there's an issue with the upcoming lockup coming up. Is there going to be a short squeeze for some of these shares? But Snowflake catching a bit of that bid, it really is extended. But, by the way, Kelly, as many of our viewers already know, and you do as well, two of the biggest shareholders in Snowflake, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway and Salesforce.com as right. well. So keep an eye on those particular shares. That's right. I forgot that that was one of Berkshire's holdings now. All right, Dom, we appreciate it. We'll see you again soon. Dom Chu there. Let's dig into the jobs report for a moment. There was positive news on the unemployment rate this morning. There was continued job growth last month. But that was offset by concern about falling labor force participation and more permanent layoffs versus temporary ones. Let's talk about what it all means for the economy and whether the COVID bill that seems to be making its way through Congress right now can help to address it. Joining me now is Michelle Meyer. She's head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Global Research. Michelle, it's great to have you here. And first of all, um, I, I read one figure that says we're down four million jobs from this time last year. There's a huge portion of the labor force that's sitting this one out. So that's exactly right. Um, so that's one of the considerations when you look at just the unemployment rate, 6.7% 
It's great. It's much better than where we thought we'd be at this point in the cycle. But that's in part due to the fact that people have left the labor force as a result of the COVID pandemic, and they're only coming back slowly. And in fact, when you dig into the numbers, you see prime working age individuals, particularly female prime working age individuals, kind of sitting out a bit from the labor force. And I think that is a function of the COVID pandemic. So whenever you're looking at these aggregate numbers, it's always crucial to dig deeper and think about the drivers behind these figures. Right. We've seen, obviously, the politicians responding. Chuck Schumer saying, you know, some of the worrisome signs from this report um, add urgency to the stimulus talks. I guess my question, though, from from where you guys kind of approach this is, is what's in the covid bill the kind of thing that is going to help continue healing this labor force? Well, I think it certainly could could help. Absolutely. I mean, you consider where some of the job cuts or weakening had come from. Um, leisure and hospitality, particularly restaurants. Now, of course, that's a good part to do with the rise in COVID cases, which has led to restrictions. But the extent to which fiscal aid can come in and support those small businesses and try to target the parts of the economy that have been hit the hardest from this resurgence in COVID cases can certainly help bridge the gap. And that's really the goal. The goal here is just to continue to buy enough time with aid from the fiscal front until we get past this shock, the vaccine is, is implemented, and we can see a true and more underlying support for the economy with strength in the private sector. So the, the, the idea is to have a nice handoff, ultimately, from the public to private sector, but we're just not there yet. I saw someone on the street the other day saying if they do pass a COVID bill, let's round it up, just say a trillion in size, that that would add about a percentage point to fourth quarter GDP. Uh, Can you give us a sense of how important uh, the passage of that bill would be to GDP, maybe whether it's this quarter or if that effect would actually, I could be mistaken, it might be for the first quarter of next year, but that's a quarter that we know uh, right now is looking pretty weak. Well, that's right. Yeah, I I don't think it will matter much for the fourth quarter of this year. Um, You know, we're kind of, that's already been a bit baked in, but by the way, has been coming in pretty strong. We're tracking that for a 6% GDP growth in the fourth quarter of, of this year. Um, but I do think fiscal stimulus will be quite important for Q1 and beyond. Um, so the immediate impact upon passage would be to provide income for unemployed, to provide that aid for small business, hopefully to stem some of the rise in jobless claims and keep people in the labor market. And that will support purchasing power and consumer spending in Q1. And then state and local aid and some of the other kind of more medium-term um, uh, spending initiatives will help to sustain the recovery and reinforce what will likely be a pretty big bounce in economic growth in Q2. So what we saw from the CARES Act, my read of it, is that the stimulus impacted the economy very quickly and largely through the consumer. And, and quickly, Michelle, where does that leave the Fed? I mean, are they expected to do more here if it does it just depend on what we actually get passed out of Congress? So I think the Fed in the upcoming meeting is very likely to make some tweaks around the trajectory forward for the program, the balance sheet program in particular, in the sense of you know really tying the balance sheet to economic outcomes and making it very clear that the Fed stands by both with interest rates and with the balance sheet, very strong forward guidance. But I don't think they need to actually change their current policy right now. And the economic data, I think, is supportive of that. And the fact that the fiscal front is progressing in terms of more stimulus, hopefully, we'll see, but hopefully it's progressing yeah. um, in a way that allows the Fed to kind of sit tight with this accommodative stance um, and, and, and act when necessary. 
All right. Michelle, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Michelle Myers with Bank of America Global Research. Let's turn now to the markets. After everything we've been discussing, you might have thought we'd see some weakness today, but it's another day of records, as Dom mentioned right off the top. The S&P, the Dow, the Nasdaq, the Russell 2000s, all setting new intraday highs. And take a look at rates. The 10-year yield trying once again to break above 1% and getting pretty close. We haven't been back above that level since March. So why are all of these breakouts happening if the labor market news is as concerning as it is? Joining me now, Andres Garcia Amaya is CEO of Zoe Financial. And Diana Amoa is Senior Portfolio Manager at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Andres, you know, the, what do you th- why do you think this timing is coming today with it? Is it just that kind of cleared the way for everybody to refocus on the progress that seems to be happening on the COVID front? Yeah, I think the the um, underperforming jobs numbers kind of reminded us that the market lo- looks at bad numbers and good news and good numbers as good news right now, right? And what I mean by that is bad news uh, basically means that there's probably going to be more fiscal support, more monetary uh, support. And good news is great. Things actually are going to be potentially a V-shaped recovery, and there's no way monetary policy is going to change anytime soon. Fair enough. Diana, where does that leave you uh, as an investor then? Does it say, you know, we have to wait and see what happens out of Congress, or do you feel like you can move forward regardless? I think markets can move forward regardless, and investors can actually move forward regardless um, because of a few things. So, the data today was disappointing, but not necessarily, as Michelle was pointing out, not necessarily bad enough to force the Fed's hand. So we don't expect the Fed to change their weighted average maturity um, of their balance sheet in December. But what it is, it does underline the fact that we do need a fiscal deal from Congress, and the statements we've heard since the data um, actually do point to the fact that we're likely to get that out. Um, we do expect to see a bit of softness in the Northern Hemisphere because of the shutdowns, but the rest of the world, momentum on growth looks pretty strong. So we think next year, as the vaccine gets rolled out, we're likely to see a strong recovery across most economies. And for investors, you need to take the medium-term view. So while the data today was disappointing, I think the outlook for the global economy into next year is actually a pretty, pretty promising one. Yeah. Andres, how important is it for you if the 10-year breaks above 1% and what happens when it does? I think that it, it could signal two different things. One is that reflationary uh, trade, if you will, uh, with the idea that fiscal policy is coming, that means more inflation. And potentially, you've got to remember, the yield uh, not only signals inflation, but growth, right? So I think it could be a combination of kind of the signal of the market expecting more inflation and more growth. Uh, but then one thing that we haven't talked about that is important to keep in mind, especially for the stock market, is that uh, the markets care about earnings. And we are 95% of the way done with third quarter earnings. 81% of companies beat earnings. Usually the, the average is around 71%. So when you look at all-time highs, throughout everything that we've seen on the economic side, which hasn't been as strong as we just saw with the job numbers, earnings do uh, do. Um, basically what they have done the last couple of years, which is deliver. And Diana, same question for you. I mean, how important would rising rates, you know, 1% yield be? I I know as well, though, that you guys are really focused on some investments outside of the U.S. So perhaps in that sense, you know, watching the dollar is more important here. Totally. Um, So 1% yield from a U.S. perspective is probably a level where you will see certain 
groups of investors start to look at getting back into the treasury market or increasing allocations, just given how steep the curve is. So when you think about uh, Japanese investors, where they've lived in a world of negative rates for a long time, actually, if you can get 1% with hedging costs as low as they are, it's still much, much higher um, risk-free rates than what they have back home. Um, as far as the outlook for the dollar, we do expect a modest weakening into 2021, which will be supportive for investments beyond the U.S. So if you look at pockets yeah. of emerging markets, um, we expect China growth to be at 8%, and that's going to have a positive impact on the rest of the EM space. And yields are much higher than they are in developed markets. We do expect to see mm -hmm. financial flows actually moving towards emerging market economies. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, we'll see what it brings. Diana Amoa, Andres Garcia, and Maya, thank you both talking through markets today on another day of milestones. Still ahead, coming back for seconds, home buyers are increasingly buying second homes amid this hot market. We're going to look at some of the names that could especially benefit. Plus, the debate begins over who should be considered an essential worker when it comes to the vaccine. Do Uber drivers classify, for instance? We'll explore. And third time's a charm. Petco is looking to IPO again as the pet industry explodes in demand this year. But are they the right bet this time around? It's all coming up in just a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. It's not just first-time homebuyers driving the housing market this year. It's also people buying second homes. My next guest says purchases of second homes could be up as much as 65% year-on-year. So who's best advantaged, uh, positioned to take advantage of this trend? With us now is Stephen Kim of Evercore ISI. He is the number one ranked home builder analyst on Wall Street. Stephen, it's great to have you back. And so this, I mean, we've seen the phenomenon of vacation towns booming and that kind of thing. But who's buying all these second homes? Well, I think that what you're seeing here is that folks of means are coming back for seconds, you may say, uh, here. Uh, and uh, you are seeing that um, in the, across this market, the higher end buyer was really absent or certainly weaker than the entry level buyer segment of the market for about four or five years. And that has completely changed. I wouldn't say that the higher end of the market is now stronger than the entry level, but they are fully participating in the smorgasbord here. Um, we think that the higher end of the market actually also has a lot of legs and sustainability uh, to this demand because of the fact that they don't have affordability concerns. So even as home prices are rising and rising, their home equity rises exponentially. They actually have more buying power. So we see this as a trend with some legs. That's what I was going to ask, if the trend was just a, a one-time thing that would already be in the rearview mirror or not. So if you think it still has room to go, who in your coverage space does this most benefit? 
Well, you know, the the builder that comes most readily to mind is Toll Brothers. And in fact, they're reporting earnings on Monday. We expect them to have some very good things to say. My estimates actually on earnings are actually up 40% or 40% higher than the street consensus for next year and 70% higher for 2022. So I think that they're going to uh, please the street with the things they have to say and certainly by the things they're going to deliver over the course of the next year. How are you 70% higher than consensus? What's everyone else missing in this story? Is it just uh, this second home boom? No, it's more than that, uh, Kelly. What we're seeing here is that people are really failing to incorporate an understanding that home prices are going to be moving up significantly over the course of the next year. They already are, which is amazing that people are not willing to sort of project that forward. But uh, I, I hear so many people say, my goodness, you know, home prices are up so much nobody can afford these homes anymore, which sounds a little bit like when Yogi Berra said that, you know, nobody goes there anymore, right, because it's too crowded. You know, I, I would point out that affordability <laughs> is enhanced by the fact that, you know, these these are all repeat buyers who basically already own homes already, and therefore their home equity is giving them greater buying power. I think people really miss that. And so when you have home prices moving up the way they are, which is basically almost like what we saw in the housing bubble of 05, the builders take a lot of that and goes right to gross margin, and it drives their earnings power. And I think that's what people are missing. And it's interesting, and obviously I can see how that would benefit all of the builder stocks and on a longer time frame than just this year. So because you brought up the analogy, it's what I was thinking of. At what point does this, if at any point, I mean, is it just so different that this doesn't trouble you because it's so unlike the housing bubble? Or at some point, is there a psychological effect from higher prices that we need to be worried about? Well, when you ask the average person, home prices are going up, is that bad or good? Most people are going to say it's good because most people are owning a home already. So the only person who sort of, you know, for whom that's actually bad is the first-time buyer. But the first-time buyer is benefiting from the fact that you have very low mortgage rates. You know, there's the, the savvy um uh, investor, you know, on Wall Street knows that the 10-year Treasury yield's been going up, but the average person on Main Street just doesn't really care about that. They just look at the mortgage rate. And believe it or not, even though the 10-year Treasury yield is up about 50 basis points, the 30-year mortgage rate, which was what really matters, is actually basically right on its lows. Historic lows are 2.71% right now. So, you know, you're seeing the low end of the market benefiting from good affordability because of low rates. You're seeing the high end of the market benefiting from uh, all the things that we just talked about. Uh, the outlook, I would think, is very good as well because there is such a scarcity of homes on the market. And you cannot change that quickly. Some people say, well, gee whiz, if everybody, you know, if people decide to move and they put their home in the market, doesn't that add supply? Well, no, not really, because they're buying a home, too. So you're 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 maybe, you know, adding a home for sale, but you're also taking up one. So it has no impact on the, in, the inventory of homes for sale. So with such a historic low of inventory of homes on uh, on the market, you are seeing this demand with nowhere to go. And so it pushes the prices up. That's why this is very different from what we saw in the housing bubble of 05, when what you really had there was just ridiculous levels of demand and supply was not particularly scarce. It's fascinating. And if people are buying second homes, it makes inventory even more scarce. Uh, Stephen, thanks exactly. for joining us. Really appreciate sure. all the more reason to look for those toll earnings next week. Stephen Kim yes. of Evercore ISI. Coming up, COVID vaccines could be coming to a supermarket near you. We speak with one food store exec whose stores have been preparing for this scenario for three months. Plus, the week's winners that you may have missed, including this stock up more than 11%. The name and what's behind the gains is next.
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. We are near session highs right now. The Dow is up 192 at the highest point of the day so far. We're up 178 right now. And look how steady those gains are across all the major indices, up just about six-tenths of 1%. Haven't seen that in a while. Let's check all the sectors where energy materials and industrials are your biggest leaders. So there's your reopening tilt today. Utilities and discretionary are the two sectors in the red right now. And look at energy up another 4%. It's been like a 10% move this week. Uh, some of the other individual names we're watching include shares of DocuSign, which are higher after a beat on the top and bottom line. They also had better than expected guidance. DocuSign's up about 5%. New customer additions, a tailwind there as demand for electronic signature transactions remains strong amid the pandemic. The stock has more than tripled so far in 2020. Shares of big lots are lower despite beating on earnings, revenue, and comps, but management expecting business to moderate due to an elongated holiday season. It's almost a 10% drop for big today. Shares of Stitch Fix are also lower on a downgrade to sell from neutral at MK on valuation concerns. They're also pointing to execution and profit margin risk from their executive compensation structure. About a 4.5% slide for Stitch Fix. Let's get to Leslie Picker now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Kelly. A call for action following this morning's disappointing economic data. President-elect Biden calling the jobs numbers grim and evidence the economy is stalling. That, he says, underlines the urgent need for a new coronavirus relief package. He's encouraged by bipartisan efforts in the Senate on a $900 billion bill, but warns it won't be enough and Congress will need to act again in January. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sees momentum toward a relief deal and explained why Democrats are now willing to come down from their previous demand for a $2 trillion package. With a Democratic president committed to a scientific solution for this with the idea that we will have a vaccine. It's a complete game changer from them. Also changing how Americans are shopping for Christmas trees. Some are still picking out a tree and putting it on the roof of their car, but many others are getting trees delivered and getting them earlier than usual, which could lead to limited supplies later. Cal, I hope you already have your Christmas tree and are all set to go on that front. Leslie, I guess you didn't see rapid fire the other day. My my Charlie Brown, my sad Christmas tree that's sitting on the dining room table with the tag that. still on. Hey, that kind of tree is better than no tree at all. That's what I say. That's right. Just wait till I get the lights on it sometime exactly. in the next three weeks. Uh, Leslie, we'll see <laughs> you again time. in a moment our Leslie Picker there. It's been a strong week for the markets with the S&P and the Nasdaq hitting records for four straight days and the Dow hitting a record this morning. Since it's Friday, we thought we'd look for some movers during the week that may not have gotten as much attention in our Friday find. 
So take a look at two top mining names, Rio Tinto and BHP. Rio in the green today, it's up more than 11% this week. BHP also moving higher today, up about 11% this week. These moves come as the dollar has slumped to a two and a half year low. That's bolstering commodity prices like copper. Copper hit a seven year high this week. You may recall that Stan Druckenmiller recommended both of these names right here on the show in early November. They're both up about 20% since then. Coming up, pets are so hot that one company is now going public for a third time. That plus the auto stock that could rally another 25% and a movie theater's chain, a movie theater chain, I should say, its plea to investors. It's all coming up in rapid fire right after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Dominic Chu, Leslie Picker, and Michael Santoli. Welcome, everybody. First up, Petco. It's filing to go public again. It's looking to cash in on the pet care and adoption boom during the pandemic. It reportedly plans to raise $800 million in the IPO and will trade on the NASDAQ under the ticker WOOF course. <laughs> this is its third time going public. Petco last traded in 2006. The IPO couldn't come as, at a better time because people are spending big bucks on their pets. According to the American Pet Products Association, pet care spending is expected to hit a record $99 billion this year. Nearly 67% of U.S. households now own at least one pet. That's the highest level on record. And pet owners are expected to spend more than $38 billion on food and treats alone. And it'll be a very happy holiday season for our furry friends. Deloitte says the average consumer will spend $90 on pet gifts and supplies this year. So, Dom, listen, is this the the best of all? You'd think a brick and mortar store wouldn't be that well positioned uh, right now to go public. But what do you think about Petco? So it's one of those situations where many of these types of stores not only have that brick-and-mortar presence, but that omni-channel distribution as well, where you can kind of order online, pick up in-store, or curbside or anything else. What's striking about this is just how popular pet ownership has become during the pandemic and the reason why the iron is hot for a company like Petco to do this. What it comes down to is whether or not it's sustainable. Now, the pet lover and the pet owner in me, the animal lover in me, hopes that these trends continue but what I fear is that if, okay, I should say this, I'm an optimist. When the pandemic goes away, what happens to those pets? Do the same types of things, the, the trends continue, or do people then put them back up for adoption? Do shelters fill up again? So I'm, I'm worried that this kind of thing is not sustainable. So for me, I would love to see this company do well in the public markets. Leslie? I mean, I, I was not one of those who adopted a pet in the pandemic. I had, I had a little baby, so I had enough to, enough to worry about and to take care of in the pandemic. But uh, yeah, as you mentioned, this is not the first time Petco has gone public. They first went public in 94, then again in 2002. They tried to go public in 2015, but wound up doing a sponsor-to-sponsor -sponsor transition. They were acquired uh, by two other private equity firms, and now they're going public uh, with what I would argue is the best ticker symbol of all of their prior attempts, but that's just uh, just me being biased with the word woof. Um, but no, it's it's definitely a pandemic play here. Pretty much every IPO that we've seen in the last nine months of 2020 has been a pandemic play, one where you've seen these kind of stories surrounding them that have benefited their business. Clearly, that's been the case with Petco. Uh, but this is one where you've got 
triple classes of stock. You've got $3.3 billion worth of debt. Uh, and so I think Dom's point where you have to kind of consider the future and consider whether they're, they're you know, timing this yeah. IPO to their advantage is one that could still play out in the years to come. Yeah, no, at least the kids, you don't have to change diapers after a few years, Mike. I mean, the, the, the dogs, you got to pick easier. that up. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> uh, no, by, by the way, uh, in addition um, to all those often... other challenges, I was going to say that Leslie said out there is Chewy's. And now you have this, this right. player out there that is very well positioned to capture a lot of the growth. And I think very crucially has a shareholder base that will tolerate losses as far as the eye can see and is going to fund the market share gains. I mean, if you're Petco, you have all that debt. It's a reverse LBO. It's going to be a different shareholder base. I think that's a little bit tougher. By the way, great ticker symbol. The first time they tank a quarter, though, and the stock goes down, everyone's <laughs> going to be putting that in the headline. Woof. That's true. <laughs> we'll leave it right there. Uh, next, let's talk about Uber. This is a big story today. They want to jump the queue. In a letter sent to top health officials, the company requested that its drivers be designated as essential workers so they can get early access to the COVID-19 vaccines. Uber says its drivers provide critical transportation, including rides for other essential employees to get to work. Their food delivery allows other people to stay home, they say, people who may be vulnerable and risk getting exposed if drivers transmit the virus. Uh, Uber shares, keep in mind, not only up 3% today, they are up more than 80% this year. Dom, they, I'm totally sympathetic to the case they're making. The question is just, how, where do they rank uh, in, in the, the universe of people who need access to this vaccine? So it's not so much on its own merits as, well, if they get it, then who doesn't? It's all a matter of relativity. And the point here being, like you said, is this notion that even if they are categorized as non-health essential workers, ones who can facilitate commerce and business, facilitate the logistics of getting healthcare workers to their positions, it still puts them behind in line behind two very critical groups of people. Those are the first responders and healthcare workers themselves and also the elderly and sick who are out there already. So even if they do get this designation, they're not going to be anywhere near close to what's happening with the top of the line. And by the way, if these forecasts for distribution are accurate, it may not matter that much because there's a, there's a chance that everybody by the course of the middle of next year will be able to have access to these vaccines. So maybe it's not, not a big deal for them right now, but I can kind of see why they're trying to make the point. I mean, Leslie, it seems to me that the bigger issue would be the stores and different businesses right now who are fighting to be declared essential, if you want to call it, or just to be able to stay open right now. Uber's probably going to keep doing business the way it's been doing business. The fact that they've been doing it all along, you know, if people don't have an alternative to Uber, they're probably going to go with Uber, even if there's a small risk because they haven't all been vaccinated. Absolutely. And I think the question, too, becomes if there is this jockeying for kind of getting ahead in the queue for getting a vaccine. I mean, every workplace wants their employees vaccinated to get back into the office and be more productive. Even the people who have been able to be working from home throughout this entire pandemic would at least like to give their employees the optionality of coming back to the workplace. So I can see why Uber would want that uh, for their drivers, which we should mention are still contractors, not full-time employees. Uh, but it's also worth noting there isn't much of a moat to become an Uber driver to begin with. So let's say that you work you know, on Wall Street for for your career, uh, but you may want the vaccine a little bit earlier. Who's to stop you from driving Uber and being constituted an Uber driver and then kind of getting ahead in that queue to get that vaccine earlier? I think that it's a little fuzzy how they can actually constitute uh, their workforce to even cut that queue to begin with. Yeah. 
No, it's a great point. Again, it's this interesting tension what we see with, on the one hand, people who desperately want access to this vaccine as quickly as possible, and on the other hand, some parts of the population who are still wary about taking it at all. Right. Uh, moving along, it's a car chase on Wall Street today. I call it a car chase because Jeffries is initiating coverage on Carvana with a buy and a $300 price target kind of chasing the move that we've already seen this year. Yes, they're saying the used vehicle market is ripe for disruption, that Carvana has a superior business model that improves with scale, but Carvana shares are already at more than 150% this year. They're one of the biggest winners. Still, Mike Jeffries thinks it can double from here if the trends continue. Um, I mean, does this remind you a little bit of what we were talking about yesterday with some of the upgrades? I think, you know, Goldman's call on Tesla, uh, that sort of thing. It does in terms of what you have to assume. Yes, there's no doubt about it that this company is going to be gaining market share. It's incredibly friendly to customers who want a more convenient way to buy a used car. It is an enormous market. They're going to get more of it, but they only take one percent. Uh, as revenue. So it seems as if it's just not clear how well it scales. They're talking about cash flow margins long term. Their target, 8 to 13 percent from, you know, minimal right now. They're still cash flow negative at the moment. So that's if you really do have huge market share gains. I mean, if you look at eBay, they're 25, 30 percent cash flow margins today. Uh, So again, it's about the tolerant shareholder base for an emerging growth company that's addressing an enormous end market, uh, and how long that, uh, that patience lasts is really the big story. And, Dom, it was fascinating to hear Phil tell us yesterday the used car market is so hot right now. There are some, for example, used pickup trucks that are going for a higher price than the new ones right now. I, so, I mean, here's what I would say. The, the, the Carvana story right now feels like beyond meat in the early stages, right? We talk about things like total addressable market. I, I would just say this. There is a disruptive element to this whole process. Whether or not it's fully priced in or not is a huge question, but... I do know people personally who've done transactions on Carvana. They couldn't speak more highly about the process and the ease with which they could buy or sell a car. So I would say I've never done it before. I haven't experienced it, but it could be a game changer. But again, a huge move in the stock. It's probably already priced in to a good extent right now. Uh, I'm looking across at the people right across the street there who love the Ford Explorer that they got on Carvana, and they're not the only ones uh, near uh, nearby. Uh, interesting to see the, the analysts kind of catch up again with what they've been doing this year. Finally, AMC has a plea to investors, buy our stock or we might go bankrupt. The movie theater chain is working to sell more than $700 million worth of shares in an effort to buy itself time as the COVID vaccine rolls out, which AMC is hoping will make people feel comfortable going to the movies again. Now, if it doesn't sell enough stock, it will need to restructure its balance sheet. And in a securities filing yesterday, AMC warned that could result in a total loss of shareholder value. AMC shares are down more than 50 percent this year. Mike, am I right to feel bad for them? I do. I I, you know, whatever the balance sheet, whatever the operational issues going into this, who could have ever foreseen this? Nobody. And, and I don't think that um, that necessarily, even if they were to have to go into bankruptcy, it's not really through strategic missteps, even though it wasn't necessarily the best setup before. What's fascinating here is the game theory involved in trying to do this huge securities offering, very big relative to their current market cap, to the existing shareholders. They're basically saying, if you don't subscribe to this deal, what you have already is, it could be worthless. And then, you know, and even if you, we do raise this money, we don't know what comes next. So it's very difficult. There are no good options right here. Uh, and most of, most of what yeah. they're dealing with is out of their control. Leslie, is it our patriotic duty to go buy some shares of AMC? I mean, it's, it's based in my hometown uh, in Kansas. So 
you know, I'm not going to tell people to go buy the stock, but I do think, you know, it's interesting that there hasn't been maybe some buy a sort movie of ticket. They should sell financing. movie tickets for like, you know, December of 2021 or something. Raise some money that way. <laughs> that, see, Kelly, that's a good Wait, idea. That some creativity involved. Um, but no, I th- I'm actually surprised movie that there hasn't been some sort of institutional investor that's come in uh, with some sort of rescue financing for them, like we've seen with some of their peers. It's interesting that they have to actually go this route of, of, of dilution and selling Absolutely. $700 million worth of shares. I don't think they should rule out a GoFundMe because I think we should all just try to give them a little bit of help through through the holidays, <laughs> through a very, very difficult time. We'll be sad without the theaters. Dom Chu, Leslie Picker, Mike Santoli, thank you all today. Great thoughts as always. Really appreciate it. That's it for Rapid Fire. Still ahead, today's the deadline for states to outline their plans for the first round of Pfizer's COVID vaccine. We're going to get those details, including how a grocery store in the South has been working for months to get ready to administer this one. And with vaccine distribution on the horizon, Jeffries is predicting a COVID reversal next year. We'll tell you which names the firm sees as outperformers coming up. Welcome back with Pfizer's vaccine rollout, potentially about a week away. States are facing a key deadline today to let the government know how much vaccine they'll need and where to send it. Meg Terrell joins me now with the very latest. Meg? Hi, Kelly. So the government calls these micro plans for where the first doses of vaccine should go in every state. And those plans are due today. So the first amount of vaccine that will be available from Pfizer will be enough for 3.2 million people. Uh, That is part of, you know, a dose regimen that's 6.4 million doses. By year end, Operation Warp Speed estimates there will be enough for 20 million people in the whole month of December. And really this rollout, depending on when it comes, really couldn't come at a better time considering how bad the pandemic is right now. If you just look at trends in hospitalizations, the dark yellow states there are the ones that are seeing the biggest increases week over week. And what we're seeing now is it's the coasts that are starting to get hit really hard as the Midwest has already been through a a really horrible period and are are still in it. Uh, And so we are starting to hear from states about their plans for these vaccines, including what they expect in that first shipment. Uh, New York, for example, says it'll get 170,000 doses in the first shipment. California, 327,000. Small states like Rhode Island, 10,000. Wisconsin says 50,000. And already, Kelly, we are starting to hear from governors like the governor of Wisconsin, Tony Evers, who wrote a letter to Health Secretary Alex Azar yesterday, essentially pleading uh, for Wisconsin to be prioritized in terms of the vaccine um, outlay, saying essentially, given the outsized impact that COVID's having on the state, it's critical that Wisconsin be prioritized for vaccine allocation uh, in quantities sufficient to vaccinate their healthcare workforce and to distribute to high-risk populations. And so you are starting to see um, states, and as you were just talking about with Uber, um, companies lobbying for earlier vaccine access. Kelly? Meg, also, since we said that FDA approval is expected next week, I mean, is it actually going to come that day that they're meeting? We don't know. So on Thursday, it's a meeting of outside advisors to the FDA who will meet and talk about every facet of these vaccines. And we're going to get to see that data, too. It should come out actually on Tuesday. So that is a key date for people to keep in mind. Uh, And then at the end of the day, that committee is likely to vote on what they think about this vaccine. After that, the FDA could act immediately or it could take some time. It could take days to weeks. There is a ton of pressure on it. So you would expect it would be sooner rather than later. But they also want people to know they're being very thorough. 
Wow, I had just assumed it was literally going to be that day. That's interesting. Uh, I, I, I hope they can go as quickly as possible uh, while taking it all in, into consideration. Meg, thanks. Uh, we appreciate it. Meg Terrell. With that vaccine just around the corner either way, how are we going to distribute it, especially once it starts to hit the broader population? Grocery and drug stores think they will have a big role to play. And joining me now to discuss that is Mickey Blazer. He's the EVP of Pharmacy and Fuel Operations at Food City Parent KVAT Foods. Mickey, it's good to have you. And first of all, are you targeting your involvement to be in these early weeks or once there's many more doses available to the broad population? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. We, uh, we're, we've literally prepared ourselves to be ready for whatever uh, we're needed, whatever role we need to play. Uh, we are ready to go with the federal um, allocation when it, when it uh, rolls out. And we've also offered our services uh, to the states should they deem it uh, that they need to count on us to help uh, immunize the population as well. What advantages does a grocery store offer in this distribution process? Because I've read that, for example, you have wide and long uh, store aisles where you can safely distance people as they wait and that kind of thing. But we spoke to the head of a New Jersey hospital uh, here earlier this week, and I asked him what he thought about grocery stores and drug stores distributing the vaccine. He didn't think it was a very good idea because you guys wouldn't be able to track the populations uh, after receiving it to make sure, you know, kind of how they're doing in the in the days, weeks, months, years to come. What would you say about that? Well, our, the vaccine would be given in our in our pharmacy uh, area, and uh, you know, we we have uh, the big thing that we can offer that maybe some of the other uh, entities that uh, will be given the vaccine is accessibility. You know, our our pharmacies located in our grocery stores. Our, our customers, patients access those uh, several times a week for other essential items such as uh, food. And finally, Mickey, have you been told yet whether you will definitively be playing a role here? Uh, we, have, uh, we have done all the required documentation with the Department of Health and Human Services for the federal uh, allocation, which will come in phase two. Uh, again, we have been in constant communication with uh, the states that we operate in, and uh, we uh, have made sure that they realize that our services are available if they deem it uh, uh, necessary to utilize us to, to get the first phase out. Fascinating. Mickey, thanks for joining us. So we'll check back in as we all learn more about this process. Mickey Glazer of KVAT Foods. Jefferies is betting that the rollout of the vaccine will lead to what it's calling a COVID reversal for certain stocks in 2021. They're highlighting names that fell between uh, November, February and November by more than 15 percent and which have since reversed course and are now outperforming. Here are some examples. Those companies include Chevron, Boeing, Citigroup. You can find the whole rest of the list at CNBC.com pro. Now, as sports teams deal with delays, cancellations and shortened seasons and people are stuck indoors due to the pandemic, there's been an uptick in options day trading. So our options, the new sports betting, that's next. Don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. Young retail traders have been pouring into the markets during this pandemic, and they're looking at one particular trade because it has a similar payoff structure to sports bets. Bob Bassani is here now with those details. Bob? 
Hello, Kelly. You know, options trading has become the new sports betting. Millions staying at home have discovered trading, and it has spawned a huge sub-industry in options trading in tandem with an increase in equities trading that shows no signs of letting up. Look at this. Trading and equity options hit new highs in November, continuing a trend that began earlier in the year. Equity options trading is 50% above last year's levels year-to-date on all of the major options platforms. Now, much of this trading activity, curiously, has occurred occurred in out-of-the-money call options, with much of it in day trading, buying in the morning and getting out in the afternoon. Analysts say that may make some sense. So, for example, if you're a retail trader and you only have a very limited amount of money to invest, buying cheap options at, say, a dollar or two dollars may make more sense than trying to buy a Tesla or an Amazon or an Apple equity and trading that. So if the stocks move, say, 5% in a day, the value of many options may also move a similar percent. So you can make the same percentage with much less outlay of capital. So it may not be totally irrational to get involved here. What could go wrong with this rosy scenario? You know, the markets have been in an uptrend, Kelly, and that has made call buying very profitable, obviously profitable. But if that uptrend reverses, this type of trading is not going to be profitable, and those people are going to be in some trouble, Kelly. Yeah, no, and, and th that is going to be the one interesting thing to watch. Or maybe sports will reopen. They'll kind of drift away naturally. How do they learn all these plays in the first place? You know, a lot of it was because of the educational material. Uh, I talked to uh, TD Ameritrade. They have enormous amounts of educational material about how to trade options. And they said that viewing of that material has gone up three times compared to the same level of last year. So a lot of them are actually just watching the educational information that's out there. You know, one interesting question is how long this goes on. And aside from the fact that the trend may go against them, some of this may have a limited shelf life, Kelly. You know, if everybody goes back to work, for example, assuming a lot of people are doing this trading at home, some of this trading may eventually die down. And of course, eventually you're going to get a new cycle. You're going to get some kind of downtrend, 10 or 15 percent. And we'll see how that shakes out with this new round of day trading that's been going on. Kelly? A a any other uh, words of advice, uh, Bob, for this, this new uh, breed of trader? You know, aren't you? Ha I am really happy that more young people are getting involved in the markets. We all want that. We want more people to own the stock market. There's too much narrow ownership of the stock market by wealthy people. Younger people coming in, I think it's fantastic. I think Robinhood is great and the whole thing. Obviously, I'm concerned about day trading. We're long-term buy and hold kind of people, I think you and I, and I think we all know that that's the best way to deal with things. Hopefully, they'll figure that out sooner rather than later. No, I'm day trading during the show every day, Bob. I don't know what you're doing, but uh, no. <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got index funds in my 401k. I'm like the most boring uh, investor on the planet. Bob, thank you very, very much, Bob Bassani, bringing that okay. story to boring us. Boring is good. That does it for the exchange today, but stick around for Power Lunch. The president of the National Urban League and the former New Orleans mayor, Mark Morial, will join us. He'll weigh in on today's jobs report, and I'll see you with, uh, after the short break with Tyler Matheson for Power Lunch. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.